to Comrades in Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, as in let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. He's getting a degree in statistical analysis, and he's here to talk with us about stats and data collection and all that sort of stuff. Uh, for those who don't know, put this in a little context. This relates to raspberry pi. It relates to farming and agriculture and human health and nutrition and studies along the lines of human health and nutrition. So without further ado, Brian, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm very good. Thank you uh, for having me on. Excited to be here. Glad to have you along. <laughs> Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're studying and what your background is, and uh, you know, you can go from there. I, I know you have a ton of information, so I don't want to uh, I don't want to run my mouth when you could be sharing good information with people. <laughs> Well, thank you. I well, I have to correct you. So my degree is not in uh, uh, statistical analysis. My actual uh, degree field is applied data science. And one of the things I want to talk about tonight is a little bit of the difference between statistics and data science, because uh, it's my belief that anyone can be a data scientist. It just takes the right tools and just the right amount of knowledge, and and you can get there. And then there's degrees in which you can get into it. But um, my background, you know, I fell into statistics by accident. I was uh, in school to be a uh, kindergarten teacher. And I realized as much as I was enjoying working with kids and, and, and doing that type of work, it wasn't the right field for me. And so I went to my advisor uh, one day and I said, you got to get me to graduation. College was not the right step for me. I got to get out into the world and just go do something else. And, and so they said, well, the only thing that's going to get you graduation is psychology. And, and so you've got to take all these courses and you've already done all this other stuff that we can use requisites. So all of my courses that were left were mathematics and statistics. And so I spent the next year and a half just completely deep diving and double booking all of my courses uh, in stats. And it gave me this real love and appreciation for uh, mathematics and the basis of what we do. And that's what data statistics is everywhere. Uh, and so I actually plan to go out and get a uh, master's degree uh, in research. And so uh, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, came over with a pamphlet and, and, and said, well, why don't you apply to this job? It was for a major healthcare institution. And it was just basic entry level position. And I, they're not going to want me, but I got I landed the job and I worked my way up from there. I, I started as a research study assistant doing therapeutic clinical trials. I managed at one time up to 40 uh, patients worth of data uh, for 10 major clinical trials. I've been published a couple times on abstract because I it was very generous of the investigators to put me on these for the work that I did. I then took on positions as a project uh, coordinator, research project coordinator, and then a research project manager. When, when I and, and I started doing the precursor to what is machine learning, I didn't know it at the time. And, and but doing my research, we were building these kind of self-querying databases, which what I called self-querying, which is really probability statistics. Uh, I didn't know it then. I was trying to put the right phrasing to what we were doing. Um, and then ultimately, I, I then changed realms a little bit and took on an operational role. Uh, where I was in charge of all of the uh, specimen collection for uh, phase one clinical trials and getting them from patients to laboratories. And this is where my uh, love for statistics really gelled with the, the actual data uh, because I got my uh, black belt in uh, Six Sigma because I didn't have enough of an education to know what I was doing in operations. And um, one point that I'll note is I, I'm not a certified black belt uh, at, at the moment. so. Anyone goes out there and looks me up. I, I don't want to be called a fraud. I, I 
two years to take a, a certificate course uh, on Simply Learn. They're an accredited Six Sigma uh, uh, institution, but I've, I've never certified myself because I didn't need to. Um, but a lot of the Six Sigma stuff is, is chi-square analysis and then these other types of factory type models. And so in this role, I realized how much power data has. And what we did is we took a, a and it wasn't myself, but with the help of my team, we were smart, we analyzed the right type of data, and we took a failing uh, kind of prospect and turned it into a very profitable uh, uh, enterprise that we were able to save money on research because we were able to process specimens in such a cheap manner. And so then I said, well, I've got to I've got to get into this. So I, I w went and took my role on as, a, as an analyst, and, and then I decided to get a master's degree for formal training. And so now I'm 10 years in, and I have this eclectic background uh, but I, the love for data is there, the love for science is there, and I think that if you like data and you like science, this is a great field to dabble in or really invest your time in. I couldn't agree more. Hey, you know, maybe for the audience you could kind of divide between uh, what data science and statistics is, because I think a lot of people probably don't understand that, and I'm not even sure I understand that entirely myself. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, I think that uh, data science, when people hear it, uh, if you're in tune with the media, it's thrown around a lot today, and it has been for the last, I think, 10 years. Uh, there have been great uh, interviews actually out there. Uh, I would say that if you uh, look up uh, Dean Abbott, he's a, uh, a very uh, prominent data scientist in the field. He talks about like a disillusionment stage, and that was in 2017. So, um, you know, I think it's kind of getting washed out as a term, but a data science is statistics, but looking at statistics with the flavor of machine learning. And machine learning is not artificial intelligence. It, it is a subcomponent of these other types of, of uh, you know, math methods. But uh, machine learning in itself is more just probability statistics. And, and so when people talk about machine learning, I think that the misconception is, is that you, you're, you, you're building these complex uh, deployed uh, algorithms using really advanced software with software engine. Not necessarily. That's absolutely true. You work at Facebook. I'm sure they're doing that, but you can deploy machine learning models and very simple calculations with free software that's uh, supported by, you know, educational uh, institutions around the world. And that's that's data science is you have these simple tools and you're looking at patterns and you're looking for the type of statistics that give you the ability to make predictions. Statistics tells you if you're right or you're well, I won't say right, you know, it tells you if you're wrong. Or if you're not wrong, <laughs> not if you're right. <laughs> and that's the whole, you know, uh, you have a hypothesis and you reject the hypothesis and not. What's interesting is that when you have um, actually this whole kind of uh, uh, emphasis behind data science today, uh, you're getting more mathematics that are producing uh, results that challenge the, uh, the, the traditional ways of doing statistics. And so uh, you will notice now if you read a lot of uh, prominent journals that they're using uh, principal component analysis and they're looking at Bayesian statistics to challenge the traditional p-value model. Where you know, you read a, a, an article, they'll say it's a p-value of 0 0.001 and everyone's eyes glaze over and you're like, okay, I guess it was, that means something to me. Um, but the, these other analyses are, are coming out where they're taking the, the data and they're making these kind of 3D constructs with them, right? And then they're measuring different aspects of it. And rather than just saying, is this abnormal? What's the chance of it being random? And that's what a p-value is. They're actually taking these, these algorithms 
that were uh, in a well, they're taking these algorithms and saying, well, this is really significant. And it's significant because it has this really defining characteristic. And then we're going to measure it a specific way. And we're going to tell you, I think that we're on to something here. And that's kind of where, you know, principal component analysis, I don't, will not pretend to, to fully understand. I just kind of glaze into that, graze into that topic there. But, um, you know, the, the math behind it, actually was found by accident. It's a great story. Um, there's a, a statistician and he is really good in his field, right? So it's Bay, Bayes' law, right? Where all this comes from. And he has this algorithm for probability. And it's so rudimentary to him. He writes it out and does whatever, I guess, they do when you come up with algorithms. I've never come up with one. Uh, when I do, I'll let you know what I did with it. Um, but they, he writes it down, he puts it in his book, his notebook and he puts it away and, and then years later he dies and his family's going through his stuff and they were giving away all of his research and the other statisticians find this formula and they're like oh my god this is the holy grail of probability and it was so uh foundational that it kind of just rocked everyone who's who who interacted with it and it has become the basis for what we know as ai today and and that's been fantastic because the the, the force behind the use of these the uh, mathematical algorithms are challenging. Like I said, the traditional ways that we look at statistics and understanding and, and validation, and and that's important because we have to constantly be bringing it forward. Um, and so you have these really two dichotomies now. To get back to your question, I'm going to bring it all the way back. I promise. Um, you have uh, you know statistics. And there's this, a statistician is going to look at data with a very specific mindset, okay? Uh, and I believe that a data scientist uh, looks at it with a no mindset and that the, the, you're going to formulate a problem and then apply a, a type of uh, calculation based on what the story the data is telling you. Very different. They have very different applications, not putting down statistics in any way. They have their uses. It's just... Uh, it's different and that's why it's really good in operational models you know it's hard to kind of get into that medical world and say well i think we should do this and that's why you should fly in the airplane i built you know i don't know that i would do that <laughs> maybe go with the more traditional statistical models for uh, air airplane safety <laughs> fair enough fair enough so um you mentioned uh, ai and machine learning could you maybe distinguish between the two because it's I think there's quite a bit of confusion around that. And people tend to think that uh, machine learning is AI, and that's not the case, is it? No, it's it's not. Machine learning is a part, or can be a part of AI, and I'm not an expert in artificial intelligence by any means, but really what we're talking about with machine learning in artificial intelligence is the breakdown of uh, uh, logged statistical trends. And machine learning is really, uh, well, it's very specific. So machine learning is that you have a data set and then you're going to teach a, uh, a model or you're going to, I'm sorry, you're going to build a model and then you're going to use that model to predict other data. That's all machine learning is, it's very simple. So uh, a good example, a uh, simple example um, is uh, item sets. So let's say you have, uh, you run a grocery store um, you may want to know what are the three things that people buy together. And it turns out it's, uh, let's say it's milk, uh, uh, diapers, and beer. And so you might want to calculate uh, and predict how often those things are 
the, the number of transactions where they're together or the number of other types of items where they're together. There's all a taxonomy of ways that you can look at this. And that's just one very subset of the way you can apply the data. And then what you'll do is you're going to say, well, I want to predict how many people are going to come into the, this grocery store and walk over and get a beer first and then get a, a milk first and then get diapers. Or maybe they get milk first and then, then they get diapers. And you analyze all this stuff and then you put your displays out so that you are uh, providing the condition where this frequency will occur more often. I'm sorry, this, this transaction will occur more often. That's machine learning. Artificial intelligence takes that and then amps it up on, you know, a steroids. million others. Yeah, steroids, whatever you want to call it. And then it is far more, you know, uh, built in. And so machine learning is a foundational part of, of what uh, artificial intelligence is. But they are not, you couldn't make them competing technologies, right? Machine learning will never take over uh, artificial intelligence. It's a part of it as a whole. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, um, what else can you tell us about, uh, you know, statistics and uh, data, um, data science and that kind of stuff? Uh, you know, is there anything you want to tell us about how you apply that, or, uh, or you know, give us some more information, I guess, because I, I think a lot of people probably are probably not very familiar at all with data science or statistics, uh, and that includes myself. Uh, my extent of data science really comes down to like my data logging in the greenhouse, and you know, while that's valuable data, there's definitely I feel like there's definitely a lot more I could do with that data if I knew how to analyze it, manipulate it, management, and assess it. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and, and one thing I just want to point out, and if I didn't emphasize it, you know, I don't want to claim to be an expert in any of this. I just, you know, I'm here to share my information with you, and, and there's a lot of great information that is uh, available uh, all over the internet. And I think that I want to first say that if you're interested in this field, uh, start doing some of the, the research into it, and there are some really great sources to delve into it and learn it on your own. Um, but uh, since you asked, uh, so, these, so there are some uh, statistic types that I think are important um, that people understand. So there's you know descriptive statistics, there are inferential statistics, there are analytical uh, statistics. Uh, they, you can break this down into multiple types. I like to think about it in a couple big buckets. Uh, descriptive statistics are not traditionally what I would consider statistics, though by name they are. Um, so this is your, you know, uh, the summary of your data. The reason I, I'm not saying it's not statistics, I just, it's not how I, when I think of statistics, I think of uh, central limit theorem and data spreads and, and, and outliers and all this other stuff, but they have their place, right? It's your mean, your median, your mode. What what is going on with this data? Looking at uh, frequencies and expectations, and 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 it gives you all the basis around your data. So if you don't know where to start, descriptive statistics is where to start. Get your data, analyze it. If you have a thousand temperature samples, uh, average them. Uh, take the median. Take the mode. You don't know what uh, so the if you don't know what those are, uh, the I. I don't want to assume any any education levels or experience to this. So your average is is very simply the 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 division, the summation of the number of your products and the division by your n. All right. So you have ten products. You sum ten products. You divide that sum by ten. Okay. Your median, however, is your midpoint right in the data. So so why why have a median? Right. So you have an average that should be sufficient. I'm just going to average everything and I get about the midpoint with that type of calculation. Well, if you have influential outliers, the median kind of throw them away and gives you a slightly different picture. 
So if you're running an, a, a mean and a, a median, and they're drastically different, well, something's up. There's something going on with your data that you can queue into. Um, and then the modes are more, the most frequent item that occurs within your data set. So if you are, well, let's look at, oh, let's say temperature data. If your temperature data average for summer was, I don't know, I don't know anything about agriculture. So laugh at you, please don't laugh say, at me. Say 90 degrees. <laughs> what, what was the temperature? Say 90 degrees. Okay, 90 degrees. And your median was 60 degrees. And your mode was 75 degrees. That is telling you something, all right? And I don't, but, but, but it would be different if your median was 90 degrees and your average was 91 degrees and then your mode was 87 degrees. So those are very clustered together. I can accurately say that, well, probably the, the, the daytime temperature for the summer was around 90 degrees. And this is what I'm gonna base my information off of. And that's a start. But we have something weird going on. You might be saying, well, maybe I have a temperature probe that's not calculating this correctly, or maybe I have a problem somewhere. And that's where these things and looking at them together will give you insight. And one of the things I always try to drive, you know, as working as an analyst, I always try to drive with people. There's there's not one item that's going to tell you the answer. And I always have people just show me the average. I was like, well, you can't just look at the average. You have to look at other parts of the picture. Even if you're not looking at the whole picture, you have to look at other aspects that will give you characteristics to tell you what the average is meaning in context. Uh, and those, those, those are kind of your base uh, descriptive statistics. And there's inferential uh, statistics. And so these are the core, I would say, stats 101 stuff that you get into in college. And these are really um, looking at inferring a population from a sample. These are your hypothesis testing. Uh, and these absolutely have their place because if you're not gonna jump into a machine learning uh, model right out of the gate, you can very easily um, with simple tools calculate the chance of something occurring at random. And that's great, okay? So if you know how to normalize your data set and you know how to set up these types of calculations, you can say, well, I'm gonna test this and I'm going to see uh, at what confidence, or, or I would say what, um, in, in the statistical world, they'll call it the alpha, right? What's my alpha? So it, it's going to be 0.05. Well, that means I have a one in 20 chance that what I'm seeing is happening at random. Uh, if it's a 0.01, it's you know, one in 100. If it's 0.001, it's one in 1,000. And so if you actually, the name Six Sigma for those types of methodologies are the sixth sigma right out that it's happening at random, so basically non-existent. Uh, and so you can then temper your results based on what you need. So if you're, if you're dealing with uh, something that's not critically important, and I'm not trying to put anybody's work down, but, but I would say that if you're not uh, doing medical research, oh, 0.05 is perfectly fine. One in 20 chance is a great place to start. I mean, heck, you could start at uh, 0.5. You have a 50% chance of it being at random. And then that's where you just start repeating your experiments. And I don't mean rerunning exploratory analysis and then clouding your data by having these uh, biases, which we can talk about. Um, but I mean, just repeating it, documenting it well, repeat it again, repeat it again. Are you consistently getting the results that you're seeing? And then when you're seeing a consistent set, then bump it up to the next uh, level. Is it, if you were doing one in 20, we'll try one in 100. And then you can see how kind of, I guess, relevant of what the changes in your variables are, and then can kind of guide you in the right direction. Those are kind of the inferential set. And I think great ones uh, that, that are often overlooked, right? Because people 
typically look at the the t test or your students t test um the the f test uh but like chi square is a really great model it works in in a similar way they have their applications where you need one side of the 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 tails of the the spread of your data you're going in one direction or you're going in another direction you know chi square looks in one direction and there's a reason for that so they're all set up the same way so once you get that tool in your toolbox you can kind of apply it in in all these different directions um and kind of the way you learn something and then apply it can be very different. So I suggest people, you know, like starting small, you know, not trying to make huge population estimates, you know, right out of the gate. If you're just getting into this, you know, look at the models and then and, and try to replicate them with your actual data. And then, then finally, I like to think of analytical data. And this is like, this is the, the type of statistics that provides the rationale for action. And 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 these types of algorithms and 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 theorems are more um, uh, not any more or less complex, but they're very different in nature than inferential uh, because they imply different things. And actually, I have a whole bunch of analytical uh, examples here, so I don't delve into it too much. But that's mostly the the stuff that I like to work with is analytical uh, statistics because I think that um, you know when we talk about I, I'm never I'm never going to be a statistician. I'm not going to get a PhD. So for me to be able to accurately tell you if a medicine that you take is, you know, working for you is not the boat that I'm in. Um, I'm in the boat that I, I would like to say um, there is data that is telling you a story. This is the story that it's telling you, and this is what you can predict from that data set. And I think that that stuff is really interesting. So that's my big big bucket. Very interesting, very interesting. Um, let's see, we've got like uh, about seven minutes left. Uh, could you just give us an example of, uh, I don't know, you're talking about doing a, a, like a coin flip to show, uh, to illustrate the concept of uh, probability and how that, how people perceive it versus how it actually works in the real world or how it works from a statistics or data science standpoint? Well, you know, it's funny. I actually have a coin right here, and I'm, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to do a, an observation analysis, and, and this is actually kind of um, leads into biases, right? So there's all sort of different types of biases that happen. Try to zoom out a little bit, scale back. So with an observation study, uh, you get the data uh, that you're being. Uh, I'm sorry, you you're given data. You can't control the variables. You can't. Um, put any expectations on the data collected. You're making an observation. And so what I think is interesting is when people make an observation and they all of a sudden draw conclusions from them or are not looking into the full story. So this is a little silly, uh, albeit, um, but it illustrates an interesting point. So, so here's my coin, okay? And I'm going to flip this coin and maybe you will accuse me of trying to have some sleight of hand. I assure you that that's not the case, but let's flip it 10 times, okay? So we'll do one. So there's the first bias right there. So recall bias. So one, we have heads. Heads, yeah. Okay. Two, we have heads. So I think my water is uh, is actually influencing this. So I'm going to take a drink of water, and that's going to help me get another heads. All right. Heads, great. Nice. All right, get another drink of water. What's that? Three. Yep. Yep. All right. 
four. This is uh, good stuff here. This water is amazing. Five, all right, five point flips. Take another sip of my water. All right, let's do it again. See if we get the tails. All right, there's my, my heads. Seven. Heads. Eight. Heads. Nine. Heads. And 10. Heads. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Oh, so that's show, it. I'm just going to say. So they can see that really does have the tails on it as well. Well, well, but you can't. That's not the data that you're given. You're given that I showed you one side of the coin and I flipped it 10 times. And so this is how half of our world works, right? But you just brought up a great point, right? So the chances of that actually happening are one in uh, 1,024. And my water is not influencing this in any way. And the point is, we have a two-sided coin. <laughs> nice. that's, that's the point with, 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 that's a very silly example, but that's an observation study. And when you look at observation studies and you look at how statistics are being employed, people will draw conclusions and make inferences that are not there. And it's called the, the, the narrative fallacy. We as people want to make stories uh, and believe in something and we introduce our own biases into them. We want to make data make sense. And uh, again, granted it's silly, uh, but, but that's you have to be very careful when you're given information and observing something and you have to question if what you're observing is actually true. Excellent. Excellent way of looking at it, and uh, I, I know I've definitely seen lots of examples of uh, of people hearing information and then not confirming or verifying it, and then kind of propagating that forward. And you know, it doesn't really help. Uh, it doesn't really help real information come out. Yeah, and we see it all over in the media, and we can talk about that. I have plenty of examples of that. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Well, uh, we're just about coming up on the break here, so I guess I'll roll us out to the break, and then we'll pick it up in the next section. Uh, you're listening to Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seas Network. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, as in let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco, and we're talking about data science and statistics and so much more. Uh, with that, we're going to roll out to the break. We'll see you guys on the other side of the break. Thanks for listening to Truth Frequency Radio. Here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network. That's F A R M A C Y, as in let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. And before the break, we were talking about uh, data science and statistics and probabilities. And Brian gave us a demonstration with a coin toss. Uh, Brian, could you explain a little bit more about that coin toss for us? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. And, and, and uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, 
I realize what kind of silly example it is, um, but it really leads into more kind of a, a deeper thought. And so right away, uh, anyone watching this, the, the third coin cost was like, something's up. Either I'm flipping it in my hand or the, it's a fake coin. Um, the thing is, when you're given observational data, you don't get to choose what's disclosed to you, okay? And you are being forced to make a decision about what you're seeing. And, and what you should be, what what you should do as a data scientist or a scientist in general, right? Put on that hat. I said before, everyone can be a, a scientist. Is to question, okay? And is what I'm looking at exactly what I'm being told? Are there other variables that could be influencing the data that I'm seeing? So let's assume um, I wasn't trying to cheat you, but let's just say I I was ignorant and I didn't check my coin. Um, I didn't know it was a two-sided coin. So then I was going to say, well, my experiment here is that the water is influencing my uh, my coin cost. And so then I'm going to sell that result uh, as it was. And so I, I think that when you start really thinking of uh, things that you see every day, okay, um, you you will be given a news story and it will say, well, well, this means this. No, no, no. This doesn't necessarily a doesn't necessarily have a cause and effect relationship to b a is present and we are observing a and b is present and we're observing b but i don't know all the data and so you have to delve into that and, and kind of weed through the different things that influence data like biases and you know different types of confounding variables and and all these kind of impact the statistics that we're given and, I, and i'll and, and i'll very quickly say look at the data that's being presented. Um, there is a very common trait with news uh, media, especially mainstream news media, to truncate scales. So uh, a funny example was, I think it was, I can't remember the news organization, and I won't even guess, because if I'm wrong, and I, I don't want to make offend somebody with their favorite news organization, but th they were showing height, but they truncated the scale, because the, the news outlet was so used to truncating the scales of their bar graphs and so they they had a man and a woman and they said five feet on the woman and they said uh, uh five and a half feet on the man but the distance was like a foot and a half right and the scale was completely off and it was it just looked funny You're like what are you talking about like that's not six inches that's and it just you could it clicks with you they're they're manipulating this um and so you know uh, when and if you're not familiar with gra graph truncation it's where you don't start from zero uh, so instead of showing you the entire picture, they're they're slicing it at a very certain point and then only showing you the data that they want you to see. Uh, and it goes back. It, everyone does it. Every it doesn't matter who you are. It very, um, I think you'll find less of the mainstream media are the ones that are really willing to present to you all of the facts and be proven wrong because that's what happens. But nobody wants to put out a news story and be the wrong guy or girl. Um, so I, I just that's the point of the twin clause. Be be careful. The data that you're given and be be careful about uh the truths that you're being told um and the problem and if the probabilities are weird and if they're so far out there you get a p-value that's like one in a trillion eh, maybe we should question that a little bit maybe we should delve in a little bit more <laughs> very interesting very interesting so what else can you tell us what uh, i know you have a, a whole bunch of information you're ready to share with us. Uh, I just want to let you keep talking because uh, I'm fascinated and I have no knowledge in this. So well, let's talk about let's talk about biases. So uh, biases um, affect uh, your experiments and your observations in a number of ways. 
Um, and I think that uh, so there's there's many many types of biases, and but but I think um, I'm going to just mention a few, and then one that I see I think the most common in you know, just everyday life, uh, not so much necessarily as a, a, a data scientist actually. Most people are pretty good about uh, uh, the types of biases and, and observing them, but there's some interesting ones here. So, like, there's selection biases. All right, so um, just grabbing the wrong data set, you could, um, and that kind of goes in with uh, like Simpson's paradox, which we'll talk about in a minute. And, and you could be kind of dealing with this data set that is really not a good representation of what you're trying to do. There's self-selection biases, where uh, you let your subjects select themselves. This happens all the time, and so then you're getting this segmented part of your population as a sample, or a segmented part of the sample that you're trying to collect, and, and you're really not representing everyone well. Okay, so these are kind of the, the initial data collection types, and there's, like I said, dozens and dozens of these. These are just two very simple ones. Uh, the one that I see the most common is is observation biased, and this is where you you are influencing either data collection or the results, or intentionally or typically unintentionally, because you like what you see. Okay. And, and, and this is like kind of the point with the coin. Uh, we are more willing to accept something that we want to like. Yeah, if we're looking for it, we're willing to take that answer, right? All the time. It happens all the time. And actually, uh, this happens with, with peer-reviewed articles. There are reviewers that are more likely to put an article through uh, to a publication because it presents a point that they themselves believe in. And even the most trained individuals are, are subjective to this this bias. So, so you like what you see, and you're and it's going to skew your perception. And so, one of the things that I find particularly uh, maddening about observation biases. Um, so, let's put it into a real world context. I hate when I when I see a Twitter uh, a feed, and it's two politicians going at it, right? And this politician says one thing. And everybody's like, yeah, you said it. And then this other politician makes a counterpoint. And I don't know if either one of them is true. But I'm going to initially agree with one of them. I'm not going to say me, but one would because of what they said. You're going to have an emotional connection with, with that statement. And then, bam, you're, you're in. And you, you've, you've, you've drawn a line in the sand. And I think that it's very important that we train ourselves not to do that. Is to say, okay, you've, you've made a statement. And you made a lot of words in that tweet, and some of them are big, and you're trying to sound very smart. Is anything what you're saying making sense? You know, or are you just dribbling nonsense and making everybody jump on a bandwagon and trying to make you look good? And there's always that, like, kind of the last word syndrome. And if you're the last thing, I think in a Seinfeld episode, this was best um, best exemplified. I think it was, what was it? It was George. He would make a joke and then just leave the room. And so they, they they fired the whole team, and then he was in charge of like the whole department or something. He couldn't really do anything. Like that's that's what these people are doing. They're just making a really funny, comical, emotionally driven point, or or really not even comical. It could be something that just drives home that you really care about. It could be completely not truthful. And so so we just have to be very careful what we ingest and the decisions that we base off of them. And so that's where I, I think observation bias is the most the crucial one to really learn about. Um, but in terms of like, you know, agriculture and testing, uh, the survivorship bias, I think, is also really interesting. So I have a, a neat story about World War II uh, that, that I think kind of drives this point home. So uh, uh, so in World War II, they, they had um, uh, planes coming back from all these combat missions. And uh, the, the, the military thought that they were super smart. Well, this is what they were going to do. They're going to 
measure all the bullet holes and they're going to figure out exactly where the planes were shot up and they drew up these diagrams and it was, ah, they got some bullet holes in the tail and the wings, a couple up by the cockpit, and then we're going to strategically place all this armor where the bullet holes are. And there's a statistician in the room, maybe one or two, I don't know. The story that I'm telling you is just one. The whole military had one statistician. And uh, he's in the room and he says, uh, uh, excuse me, I think that you have a uh, survivorship bias here uh, because the planes that are coming back don't need the armor where the bullet holes are. Okay, you need to put Those armor. guys didn't die. <laughs> yeah, they didn't die. They survived. So those bullet holes don't need to be reinforced. Anywhere that didn't get shot, that's where you need to put your armor. And so that's the whole, like, you know, there's another kind of morbid uh, story I'll share with you. There's a, a study done a number of years ago where uh, uh, somebody claimed that cats, when they fall out of six-story buildings, right, are more likely to survive than a cat that falls out of a, like a oh, two-story building or something like that. Cats are falling out of apartments, apparently, all over this town. And, and for a long time, people believed it. And there was a whole science kind of based around it that you know, the cat's turning over and can land on its feet well and i think uh, there's a news uh, news outlet that was like well wait a minute how many cats that fall out of a six-story window made it to the the hot you know the vets to be counted in this 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 study uh, i bet you most of them died on impact so you know you're influenced your whole population based on this and so you know, survivorship biases are harder, I think, to kind of uh, uh, isolate. But when you're looking at the results of a study and you're trying to make a decision about how to move forward, especially if you're taking a lot of uh, uh, data points and you're kind of pulling them together, uh, the more complex your data model becomes. Uh, when you're trying to run like a machine learning algorithm, the, sometimes the more biases will come out of it. You kind of overfit your model. It will work really good in test data. So you have to think to yourself, like, what kind of things am I introducing into this that I really shouldn't be introducing that I'm doing wrong? Um, and that is like, and that kind of goes to like one big point with biases that, that I think that is my main takeaway is that like, you're not, you should never be the expert of your data. Um, you can be the expert of a business rule of a domain of an area. The data is the data, let the data be the data and then look at it, interpret it. And then, and then make a decision. What people like to do is they see a result, and this is actually very common in people that I work with at times, is they'll say, well, no, my instinct tells me that it shouldn't look like that. Your data is wrong. It's like, well, is it wrong, or are we seeing an anomaly, or is it sliced away? It shouldn't be wrong, but people's instinct is, well, that's wrong, and I'm going to change something. And now you're dying. So, I know I saw that when I worked for the surveyor engineer. I'd come back with field data sometimes. and be like, no, no, that's wrong. I'd be like, no. I ran controls on it. The shots are clean. The data is good. Something doesn't fit in this piece, but the data is not wrong. And he, oh no, that, that that's got to be wrong. That can't be right. And like, we'd spend hours going back and forth about <laughs> why it could and why it couldn't be wrong. And and sure enough, you know, I go back out in the field again, reshoot the shots. Same data comes back. Well, see, now I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong, right? Well, okay, but one more, do it again. Do one more shot set. Okay, fine, I'll bring it back. Well, all three shot sets are the same within 0 0.01 feet of each other. It's not my data that's wrong. There's something wrong about how this piece falls into the other piece in the land or whatever. So I can totally relate to you on that, on that level. And, that, yeah. and that's the whole point of this stuff, right? And you have malf uh, equipment malfunctioning. You know, how, how are you going to figure it out? 
If you're going to just override your expectations, sure, okay, repeat it once or twice. But you can't. <laughs> At what point do you have to just kind of eat some humble pie and say, okay, maybe I'm not as, as well-versed in what I think I am, and I need to kind of listen to the, what the data is telling me. Uh, or maybe I'm just not understanding it correctly. And that other example you gave before, like, remind me of the LD50 thing where, you know, when they do drug studies, they, they look at, you know, 50% of the population dies. Now you have a, now you have the toxicity level of the drug. And it's like, well, I don't know. Do we have to go to 50% kill to really say it's toxic? Like, <laughs> that seems like an extreme level to, to go to. <laughs> well, unfortunately, well, uh, a lot of the drug testing um, actually has lower thresholds now for that type of stuff. But, uh, but that's good. But, <laughs> <laughs> There, there's definitely the exacerbation of a point um, that we <laughs> certainly are making, but that like goes into like weird mathematical anomalies too. So there's like, um, okay, so let's take Simpson's paradox. Okay, this is a really neat thing that happens with data, um, talking about like weird results. So uh, Simpson's paradox is where you have, uh, I describe this without a, I need a chalkboard and behind me. Um, you have data trending in, in one way. Okay, so let's say you've divided a data set up. It's, that's called conditioning. Uh, you're dividing it up on a classification of your uh, sample. Uh, let's say you're uh, conditioning on age. So you'll have an age set of, uh, of 10 to 20 year olds and you'll have an age set of uh, 21 to 40 year olds and an age set of 41 to 60 or whatever. Um, and they're all trending this way. And you plot all your graphs, and you have your nice X, Y axis, and you're, you're doing X input inter, uh, influences Y output, right? You have this great regression model or a great correlation, whatever you're doing, and everything's trending up. And then you put everything together, and you say, well, let's look at the whole big picture, and then all of a sudden it's trending down. That's Simpson's paradox. And then it's just it's completely inverted, or it is null. And so, well, how does that happen? If everything is trending up, how does it trend down? And I could draw it out and show you and give you the math behind like the things that are driving it. But the point is, is that when they occur, they tell us something and we have to be in tune to what the data is telling us. And again, mean, median, mode, right? You take multiple snapshots of what you're doing and you say, well, okay, I, I, I see in my class subsets, they're trending up or trending down. I see in my whole, whole view of this data, they're trending in another direction. I'm observing Simpson's paradox, there's something wrong. And I either have a confounding variable or I have a collider. Now, confounding variables is where one variable influences multiple. Uh, and, and a collider is where multiple variables kind of come together on a point. Uh, so if I were to say, I think confounding variables are, are intrinsically easier to understand. So if I have, you know, my coin is a double-sided coin, that's a, the, a confounding variable which would impact any number of results. Uh, that are connected to it. Or, or a better uh, uh, example of this is where you have an underlying unknown variable between two things that seem independent, but they're really there's really a connection there. And that could be an underlying, if you're doing a disease study or there's some underlying disease that's impacting something else and you think it's your drug and it's not, it's this other confounding variable and this has multiple outcomes. Uh, colliders, though, are a little bit different. Um, colliders is where, well, if I'm going to take a sample Let's say I'm going to sample, uh, I'll use an article that I could give you to post. Um, it's actually really interesting. It describes it much better than I can because the person who wrote it has probably multiple PhDs. Uh, but what they say is uh, the, the, they're sampling college students. 
Okay, and they're saying, well, we're going to give this uh, variable called conscientiousness, and that is the ability to work hard, and we're going to correlate it with intelligence quality. And our suspicion is that intelligence quality is directly correlated with the ability to work hard, and that you're going to have some people who aren't smart but can work hard and are in college, and you're going to have some people who are really smart and don't work hard and are in college, but those will be outliers. And this study is is aimed at seeing a nice linear trend in direct uh, intelligence quality and, and your uh, work hard ethic. And so they run the, the data model and it's all fake data. Um, this and then it's inverted, completely inverted. OK, and even it's manipulated fake data. It's still inverted. Why? We have a collider. The collider is uh, college admission. And so uh, you can't if you were to say I'm only going to sample college students or I'm not going to sample anyone that didn't go to college, you're, you're conditioning your data, you're slicing it out on a variable that is impacted by your intelligence quality and the ability to work hard, right? So both of these things are colliding with uh, the uh, college attendance. And so there are people who are smart and worked hard who didn't go to college. There are people who worked hard and who are not smart that went to college. There are people who are really smart and didn't go to college that don't work hard. These all these people all over the place. So then if you take that data and then spread it out and look at the whole picture, there's absolutely no correlation whatsoever between someone's ability to work hard and their intelligence quality. And then you have these like really fun, spurious correlations that come up all the time. And actually a great website for this is if you go to uh, tylerweigand.com. Uh, it's my favorite website. He, he makes all of these uh, uh, unrelated observations of how they're trending together. And this is what this is what's happening here, right? We, we have this weird kind of variable that has come in and we've done something wrong with our data and we've done like a, a statistical error. Uh, but the funny ones really make the point. So like there's a uh, the directly correlated, okay? Uh, the number of uh, John, Tra oh, no, 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 it was Nick, Nicholas Cage films are directly correlated with swimming pool deaths. And so <laughs> some of these are, <laughs> there's some really good ones in there. Um, and, and most of these are a little morbid because most of them are associated with death, but it's like, you know, shoe sales and like, you know, uh, people falling into wood chippers, you know, it's like, oh, these things are not correlated in, in any way, uh, but you will see trends that kind of go along. And so um, when, you, when you think about like how you're kind of uh, combining data, you have to think about, if you should be conditioning or not, you should be looking at different parts to see if you should be, um, if you're observing this weird paradox and, 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 and they don't have small implications. And you were talking the difference of saying that something is showing some type of correlation or not whatsoever. And, and, and that's important um, because if you miss something and, and are happening to slice data in a certain way, you could miss really valuable insights to what you're doing and be throwing out whole sets of experiments I'm sorry, not experiments, observations, because you know you you you're not observing some of these uh, fundamental mistakes that are really hidden and buried in your data sets. Very interesting. So, uh, wow, <laughs> how does that all tie back in from uh, you know from biases and and that sort of stuff? How does that come back to uh, you know applying data science in a meaningful way? Well, I mean, I like to think of the uh, age-old maxim. There's a couple. Uh, big ones that, that you can always find. But the, my favorite is is correlation uh, does not imply causality or correlation does not prove causality. And I like this maxim so much because uh, it's great to say when you don't agree with something. <laughs> so sure. as, soon as, as soon as you don't like something, you just throw that out there and most people will back off. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I've seen that many times actually. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I, I think what's what's important is is you need to you need to think about um, this goes, you need to think about what you're being presented with, okay? And you have to ask yourself, uh, what are the underlying true causes? And if you're trying to analyze your own data, uh, it's kind of like a root analysis of, of what's happening. And so while these two items are correlated, don't throw that out. They may be directly correlated. It uh, doesn't mean that there's a cause and effect relationship. How, uh, more often than not, there's probably some related variable that it, it is impacting both of them. And it's either going to be a collider or a, a, a confounding variable. There's something else that there's that we can analyze here that is the cause and effect relationship. But, but they're, they're nice to like kind of uh, delve into, but don't buy into something just because it's being sold as uh, a, a relationship, uh, uh, a cause and effect relationship. So uh, colleges will put out articles 90% of students that studied abroad graduate on time, or this is taken from a, a similar article I was talking about. Um, that's simply not true. 90% uh, of the students who studied abroad may have graduated on time, but presenting it in that way implies that because you studied abroad, you will graduate on time. Um, what Just makes you think that? Not guaranteed based on that, right? <laughs> no, and what, what it turns out is that in order to study abroad, in this very specific example, in order to study abroad, you kind of have to have your stuff together. So you're going to graduate on time anyway. So if you could graduate on time anyway, then you had the option of studying abroad. And really, the, the, the right statement to have made was people who have their stuff together graduate on time. <laughs> And a subset studied abroad, <laughs> and and that's how you have to look at all of these data. Uh, but then, but then you got to flip it. Or you got to pause for sometimes. You'll be presented with what looks, you know, is not a correlation. It's an experiment. The variables have been controlled, and somebody has gone through painstaking detail to document and replicate results. And they've had peers replicate results, and they're going to say, well, there is a absolute direct cause and effect relationship between people getting hit by cars at 90 miles an hour and people dying. And I can guarantee you that if you get hit with a car at 90 miles an hour, there's an extremely high likelihood that you will die. And I believe that's the, I believe that study very well. You know, I mean, there's gonna be no doubt in my mind. I would agree with that. <laughs> there are subtler ones, right? You know, there are people who, who like to uh, argue science and act as if it's a uh, fact, or not fact, it's, it's, uh, it's opinion. Uh, and there are sciences out there that people question. So my my point in this is what you're questioning, put it into the two buckets. Are you looking at an observation or are you looking at an experiment? If you're looking at an experiment, well, I would not be so quick to dismiss it. If you're looking at an observation, well, that relationship is probably, probably not there. Um, maybe, but it's unlikely. And once you can split those two, you can start making better informed decisions, especially when you talk about nutrition, and all this other agricultural outlets, that kind of leads into nutrient, nutrient studies are really interesting for sure. Yeah, it, it will. I mean, you don't get me started on. I mean, I'm sure I've, you've probably mentioned it before, but the whole thing with uh, the 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 sugar industry um, putting out studies and paying scientists to prove that uh, sugar was not bad for you. It was these saturated fats and all the butter. Oh, butter is going to kill you if you have butter watch out just jump off a bridge tomorrow it's like you know but then and then it kind of brings into like the other things that i talk about is like p hacking right so then there's a manipulation of data so like first off 
the the I think the peer review, the state of peer reviews today are too much of a business and they're not where they should be. Yeah. We talk about this in ethics and we talk about how people there was an article that was posted by someone and it was 750 words of please take me off your email list. <laughs> it got a peer review gold star and it got published on you know uh, one of these one of these journals. Um, and when you see stuff like that, it makes me it makes me personally upset because then it's like I have to argue with somebody about a basic scientific fact that they're telling me is not true because other people are clouding truth with garbage for money. And then I think the 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 the, the sugar industry example is the best one because for a very long time we believed that that you know this these studies that came out were absolutely true. And we're blindsided by it. So, so what do you believe? Well, you got to take the whole picture into mind. You got to do your own research. You got to do your own reading. You got to read some from here. You got to read some from there. Put it together. Beat it. You know, you got to make your own decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it seems like there's a lot of fact twisting in, in a lot of different fields. And it's interesting that the peer reviewed study thing, like so many people like seem to be so sold on that. It's like, well, you know, if you've got biases inside of that institution, then, you know, how valid are some of these studies? Like you almost want to see like a, a, a sub, a sub peer review system to review the peer reviewed studies. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it almost becomes like a beautiful <laughs> And I have, I have, I, I actually have, uh, you know, points that that will help you kind of make those decisions. There are ways of picking out the bad studies right away. Oh no, 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 no! Somebody's hiding something here. You know, they're kind of pushing this through, and that's kind of with p hacking and stuff like that. Um, but there are ways to doing it. You don't need to rely on on necessarily other people. You could do it yourself. Fantastic. Well, uh, that's why we got you on here, because, boy, you're really giving us an education on uh, all this sort of stuff related to data science and stats and all that. So uh, we're coming up on the break here, so I guess we'll just roll out to the break and we'll pick it up in the next section. You're listening to Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, as in let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. And our guest tonight is Brian Seco. We'll catch you guys on the other side of the break. Thanks for listening to Truth Frequency Radio. So why would I want to buy one of these, uh, Mr. Radio Shack Manager? Why would you want to buy one? Because now everybody's a KO cooler. Farms here on True Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's F A R M A C Y, as in let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. We're talking about data science and statistical analysis, peer reviewed studies, all sorts of interesting information. So uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, peer reviewed journals, and you were saying that um, 
ordinary people can kind of distinguish uh, the difference between a, a peer-reviewed study that isn't biased and one that is biased. Could you uh, kind of give us a little more guidance or help on how to do that? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to point this out. Actually, picking out a bias in, in, a, in a design is, is really quite challenging. Uh, you, I think you need a really thorough background to be able to say, well, this is biased because uh, X factor, or this is a type of bias that I'm observing. I think what's easier to kind of distinguish um, is the way that the articles are kind of formulated. There are some cues that you may want to do more research. Um, and I'm not going to say that um, most people are going to be able to determine an article to be true or false, but I think that there, there are reasons when you, you, when you don't want to just stop digging. You want to keep getting into the layers. You want to see what other related uh, uh, st uh, types of print are saying or other media is saying, and then, then you formulate your final decision. So, you know, what are the kind of things that, that we look for? Well, first off, uh, how often do you read a, a peer review article? That's my question to you. How often do you read? Uh, uh, you know, maybe once a month. Not not as frequent as you might expect, given my uh, background and my channel and stuff. Uh, <laughs> I used to do a lot more reading, but I just find myself so busy with this that I don't get into it much. But I, I do, and you know, I I myself, you know, I've learned to like look for certain wording that kind of tells me like. Wait a minute. You know, it sounds like they're trying to bias how how they're saying this, you know, without without going into the study deep enough to really understand it. And that's when I'll go back and go, okay, let me pull up PubMed. Let me see what I can find on there. You know, I start to dig a little deeper. So yeah. is that like kind of what you're pointing at? Well, my point is, if it's once a month, um, it's, it takes practice. So if you really want to get good at seeing this stuff, I mean, definitely frequent it more often. Get used to the verbiage. So the first thing I would say to people is know what the article is trying to tell you. So what's the article going to do? If you've never read a peer review article and you pull one up at random, you're probably just going to be like, oh, my God, and just shut off the computer and run away. Or maybe you won't. Maybe you just dive into it and love it. But But I think most of the time it's like this, what is George Carlin made jokes about like a uh, uh, religion with like this scary language. Like this is what math is. It's like, it's all scary language. Uh, mathematical formulas are not that complicated. There are some that are very complicated, but most are not that complicated. It's a different language that you just didn't study to read. And so if I gave you Chinese, you would be just as confused. But once you start breaking down those barriers, and you kind of start setting it up and you're like, oh, okay, I know what they're asking. First, they're going to be introducing the, what they're studying. They're going to give me a literature review. They're going to tell me everything that they already read. Well, big stop right there. Uh, look at what they read. What did they read? Uh, so I was writing a paper about, uh, I forget, it was a terrible math course. Um, it was a math course where I had to write papers about math theory, and those are the worst math courses. Um, and so uh, I remember, <laughs> I, I'll do the math. I don't want to write about the math, uh, but I I had to construct an argument. Did I favor or was I against one of these articles? They're talking about eigenvectors, and uh, eigenvectors are these really cool mathematical constructs that are to help us manipulate matrices and do fun things with them. But um, the point was. The, 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 what I point out was their peer review was lacking. They made an assumption, and they said uh, that uh, that they were observing a trait in a population, but didn't define the name of the trait. So they bucketed it under this one term, 
Okay, and the, 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 the details of the article are not important. So then I went into their peer review section, or their literature review, and I pulled up every single article that they listed. And every single article defined their characteristic differently. And I was like, so wait a minute. So let me put this into a video. I really can't remember the paper that I was talking about. But it was something like uh, uh, violence in video games, like one of these types of articles. And they said, people who play video games are more violent. I was like, okay, well, define violence. Is it literally striking another person? Is it a, a shooting? Is it a stabbing? Is it yelling? Well, in one article, it was verbal abuse. In another article, violence was violent behavior and where somebody punched a hole in a wall. Another one, uh, somebody actually like injured another person. Okay. And so, well, I have a problem with that because you didn't clearly outline the type of behavior that you're measuring. You're citing it from multiple articles that are describing different types of behavior. And then you're going to tell me that your correlation, or sorry, your experiment is directly showing this type of uh, cause and effect relationship. Well, I pause right there. So first thing, check out the lit review. Uh, what are they saying? Who are they quoting? Are the, the sources reputable? And you don't even really need to go beyond that because if you don't even agree with some of the, the, the arguments that they're setting up, that you're probably really not looking at a good article. Uh, another good thing is looking at how often their article is referenced. Now, um, many, and again, not any one of these is the golden rule, uh, but I will find that if a article is very poorly referenced, it's probably not a good resource as the foundation of a type of argument. Now, there are great articles out there that are, are never referenced. They're written very well. They have great science in them and nobody cares. And that's too bad. Uh, but uh, if you're looking at something as a really defining characteristic and you're finding a lot of articles that are not really being referenced, uh, maybe try to look for something that other people are also referring to and that they're they're saying well this work is good work and i'm using this work now i just contradicted myself so if you were paying attention i just said that people are using lit reviews in poor ways and they're referencing articles and they're using them wrong well that's where you've got to read between the lines and no one single thing is going to be the answer and that's data science that no one statistic no one calculation is going to give you what you want You've got to kind of do multiple avenues and you've got to be able to put pit them against themselves and see what starts lining up. So that's what I would say. So start reading them and then, you know, forget the math, you know, unless you're really interested in the p-value, you know, go right into the introduction, jump right into the conclusion and then and then and then just see, you know, what the references are and, and just start making conclusions about the statements that they make. And if you don't like how someone educated themselves, ask yourself, am I introducing my own bias? Do I not like I don't know. I applied to John Hopkins University and they rejected me, so I don't like their articles. You know, or are you seeing something that's truly off-putting to you? And just keep doing it. And that's the best way to kind of uh, separate the, the 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 wheat from the chaff, or I guess I'll use the the data science term, the the signal from the noise. Right? We want to we want to really zero in on the good stuff. And, and, and this goes in different directions. I I can't tell you how many great um, blog articles I find, YouTube videos I find of like really awesome content. Um, and I also find a ton of garbage. And there is just complete falsehoods being displayed all over the place. And it's funny because a lot of times I'll see a truth right next to a complete lie. And it's just like, no, you're just 
I know you're lying. It is not a, you're either intentionally or unintentionally putting false information out there. And so that's really hard too, because you might have a source of information where you really like certain truths that are coming in, but there are also other things that kind of bother you. That's okay. I, I say, you know, just you have the obligation to cherry pick the truths out from everything else and then educate yourself to form an example. And that's how every other person puts together every other great big statement they've ever made in their life, right? And if you look at the the people who are making leaps and bounds in, in all, all these scientific uh, fields, they're not just listening to one person and saying, oh, well, that doctor said that that was the way to, no, 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 no. They blew it apart and they said, well, I like what you did here and I like what this person did here and then I'm going to come to my own conclusion and then you prove me wrong. And then what, is, what, what does my experiment look like? And so that's, that's how I like to look at all this stuff. And, and don't discount anything. There's, there's just, just, get it all on the table, lay all the cards out and say, what am I seeing here? And when you do stuff like that, you'll start seeing trends. And then you might see a correlation. Then you might say that there's a relationship, but then we know correlation does not prove causation and you will jump right back into the right seat. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I've definitely seen that in, uh, in articles about, you know, agriculture and nutrition, that kind of stuff. I've definitely seen like, you know, that they'll, they'll, they'll use one truthful statement and then they'll, they'll stack like, uh, you know, false information behind that based on that truthful statement. It's like, it's so frustrating to see that like someone take a truthful statement and then paint this false picture off of it. It's just like, ugh. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it's, it's too bad that the, the many, um, reliable areas have been tarnished because of people being greedy. Um, but I would just say, don't immediately throw things out. Uh, 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 don't be so quick to discount something because of its source. And I would say, like, this goes for everything from 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 peer review articles to newspapers. If you religiously watch Fox News, uh, jump into CNN and make sure that you're getting you're looking at the whole picture. If you love CNN, then you better be watching Fox News. And I, I just use those as two dichotomy uh, news sources because they're very easy to compare against each other. Um, but I mean that I just like you have to. You have to take in everyone's opinion, and there is truth between this. The, neither one is true. The truth is right in the middle. Okay, yeah. and and but I'm not, I don't mean to get into politics, and so that's not my. I don't enjoy talking about that's politics. Okay. <laughs> that's you know that's a great example of like the dichotomy between the two because, uh, you know, there's truth on both sides of every story, basically, right? Yeah, and then you, didn't, you get better at picking it out. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned p-values and that kind of stuff. Uh, did you want to go into that a little bit more and uh, elaborate on that? Or did you have something else you wanted to move to? Yeah, actually, we talk about p-hacking. So we're talking about truths and lies. And, and so, um, you know, there's this interesting um, thing that has happened over time. There's uh, You can go online, actually, and find uh, algorithms that are set to just ingest all this data and uh, tell you when there's a relationship. And so we talked before about spurious relationships. We mentioned TylerVigan.com and uh, uh, the, the Nicolas Cage movies and uh, swimming pool deaths, right? But that's what these are. Uh, and those correlations look really funny. But if I said to you, um, gosh, I got to use another political example because it's just the, the ones that people write about all the time. Okay, so there's this news article that said, um, not news article, I'm sorry, excuse me. There was a, there was a, a submitted a journal 
and the the submission was uh, that uh, cancer rates in certain rural Republican states were extremely low. Okay, and they said it's because of the Republican lifestyle, just because of the rural lifestyle, these people are not getting cancer. Well, that's p hacking. That's a spurious relationship. It actually was. It's not the case. And I'm going to get, well, actually, that's going to tie into the law of large numbers or the law of small numbers. It doesn't exist in central limit theorem. But basically, if you throw data into an algorithm long enough, you'll find a relationship. I highly doubt being a Republican has anything to do with the cancer rate. I just don't believe I would agree that with has that. any impact. You know, <laughs> um, maybe rural living does. But the, the, the phrase was it was Republican. Uh, then And then another article was put out that it was democratic rural areas and they had the lowest cancer rates and i was like well that can't be true um, <laughs> another article was put out and it was that rural rates have the highest i'm sorry rurals have the highest cancer rate and it's because of all of these pesticides that are going in the water and this study said that every single person in this town had cancer and they had pesticides on their land and that's that's true it's not true. Um, there's a problem. Uh, so, like, first off, let's tie up p-hacking here. So you, you throw enough data into a, a an algorithm that looks for this stuff, and you start sliding the data back and forth and running a different data sets, you will come across a relationship, and it will look meaningful to you with the right data sets. And I can go right now, and I can generate 100 random numbers, and I can do a p-value analysis and will come up depending on my alpha level of a number of numbers a set of numbers that are statistically significantly related to each other and that is a spurious relationship and that's your alpha level so if it's 0.05 it's 1 out of 20 we talked about this before 1.01 it's 1 out of 100 point, you know 1 out of 1000 um and and so depending on how high your alpha level is the less likelihood that these random encounters are occurring that's the problem with the p-values, and that's why people are moving to Bayesian statistics. They're using principal component analysis, and there are much more robust models that you cannot do this with. And, and principal component analysis uses you know, complex uh, eigenvectors and, and matrical designs so that you can measure the distance of, of one set of variables to a distance of another and come out with this really cool model and says, like, you know, uh, everyone who liked this one movie liked it because... Uh, of this one variable, and then you do this cross analysis, you'll say, well, no, it wasn't the variable you thought it was. It was actually that most of these people, are, I don't know, are Brad Pitt fans, and Brad Pitt fans happen to have liked this one movie really well, and then you got to the root of the, you know, the really driving variable, and that's where these cool analyses are. I, I, I if any of this strikes a chord, go onto YouTube, look up principal component analysis. There's some great mathematical formulas that are broken down into very simple examples. I am not doing it justice in the least bit, um, but it's really interesting stuff and it challenges that traditional mindset. Um, but but to go back to the, the numbers thing, I want to talk about these like rural uh, examples that I brought up. So, so here we have an example where we have a rural town that has no cancer and a rural town that there's all this cancer. Well, the problem is, is the term rural uh, typically means um, uh, is associated with uh, uh, low populations. Okay, so you're not going to have the same size sample as you would in, I don't know, take Manhattan. 
let's say you did the same uh, study and you took the entire population of Manhattan as your sample size, you're going to get a very different outcome. Uh, that's because there is a law that says that at a certain sample size, there's this kind of drop-off point where we're going to start observing things um, in the statistical sense that are that we're trying to we're trying to measure. Okay, so if you don't get to that drop-off point, you're looking at a a spurious correlation, I guess you could say. Um, I'm sorry, that's the wrong way to put it, but you're not looking at, you, you have too low of a sample size and it's negatively in affecting your outcome. Okay, so here's a better example. If I give you a jar of marbles and half of them were white and half of them were red, and I said, let's pull two marbles out, what's the probability that we will pull out two marbles of the same color? Okay, and it, it depends on how many marbles are in the jar or whatever. But let's say, I, I don't know, if we just had a, a standard jar, it would probably be around like, I don't know, 25%. You're going to get two, two marbles of the same color. And somebody can, in the comments of your channel, can yell at me and tell me it's I'm completely wrong. But okay, so then <clears throat> let's let say, <laughs> let the mathematician jump in, please. I'm, it's not the point I'm trying to make. Um, but then you're going to grab three marbles. Well, then you're, you're, you're dropping the probability of grabbing three marbles, right? This is the toying cost that we talked about before. We have these branching arms of the, the situations that could happen, right? So let me ask you something. Uh, CJ, if I have uh, four girls, what is the probability of having a boy? Uh, well, I don't know. I guess it really wouldn't matter, would it? Because, like, the previous data doesn't affect the new the new thing that you're trying to analyze probability on, right? Right. So there's there's no correlation between that. But if I were to say to you, what's the probability of having five boys? Oh, it's a different question. Yeah. Be right? a lot, it would be a lot lower. It would be a lot lower, I would say. Right. And that's that trajectory arm. Well, what if I would say instead of five boys, what's the probability I have two boys? Well, this is the marbles, right? So if you pull out two marbles, that probability is higher. You're going to get two of the, that that single branch. There's less branches on the tree of the probability uh, outcome that can occur. But you pull out seven marbles. What's the probability? You're going to find seven marbles that are of the same color. Well, I, it's fairly low. Um, and so that's the law of large numbers. So you have to get to this tipping point. So the problem with all these studies that they made was they studied rural areas and the population or the, the samples that they took were too small and so that they were seeing they were grabbing all the red marbles when they grabbed their samples and they'd grab all the cancer patients or they'd grab all the non-cancer patients and in fact they were just completely wrong on what they were trying to state now am i saying that a certain lifestyle doesn't lead to lower cancer rates no am i saying that pesticides and soil couldn't affect cancer rates no it's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is you have to have a sufficient sample size to be making claims that things are impacting one another. You can't get to that point if you're if you have garbage in, garbage in, garbage out, and that's that's bad data set, bad analysis, basically. Right? That's exactly right. Small data set, probably a bad analysis. Yep. You know, that, that's not always true. You can do case studies. There's different ways you can handle smaller data, but if you're trying to run these kind of t typical numbers, you need robust data sets. Now, and I can already hear somebody right now, like I, they're. They're saying, but that's not true. And you're right. You can com combat 
the the small data sets with other types of calculations and other statistical methods. And there's various ways that you could compensate for uh, not necessarily having the largest sample size. And that all of those points that I'm sure someone is screaming at me for is absolutely true. My point is, you're just jumping into this stuff. Um, you know, it's great if you have generated a ton of data, uh, don't grab five samples. Uh, grab a thousand samples. You're probably going to get better outcomes. And that's what the central limit theorem is about. Is when you start looking at all these probabilities, central limit theorem says that it, these statistical uh, calculations are, are based around this notion of that you've done it uh, an unlimited number of times and that you have this really nice normal spread of data. And maybe your data is skewed to the right or maybe your data is skewed to the left. And we, you know, those are different topics to talk about. But but the point is, without a su su sufficient sample size, you're never going to be able to get yourself to a point where you can start drawing accurate conclusions, uh, whether they're uh, meaningful ones about medical data or you're just trying to do, um, you're trying to dial in your uh, your sensors that you have in a greenhouse. It doesn't matter. You need a, a sufficient sample size. Very interesting. So, um, so how does that? How does that bring us forward to, you know, like from statistics and data science and probabilities, how does that kind of like cohesively come back together to a better understanding of data science and how it works? And um, especially for, for people who maybe aren't familiar with any of this sort of stuff, uh, do you have like a way to kind of tie these concepts together a little more for them? Or? Yeah, you know, I, I think like um, when I think about all this stuff, I mean, you know, there's, there is, it, it, it's, it's, there's an underlying fabric to everything that we do, okay? And the more layers, we talked about a lot of deep layers today, um, but there are a lot of simple things that are holding um, basic truths together. And there are a lot of ways of discovering interesting things about the world around you. You know how to listen, you know how to look. And if you are prepared to eat humble pie, as I like to say, when you are looking at your data, and if you are prepared to think critically and put another mindset uh, and kind of put, stand in someone else's shoes, so to speak, and kind of think from a different angle, uh, you will discover really great and interesting things. And you don't have to be an expert. And it doesn't take a lot of tools to do this stuff. You can do it with Excel. Uh, I'm trying right now to do it with more simple tools like Office Libre, which is hard because they don't quite have the same formulas that Excel does. If you're into Python and you like uh, doing that, I mean, there's Python is a fantastic tool. I encourage anyone who's interested in this field. I mean, that's also another big buzzword. There's Python, there's R, there's Julia, there's all these other languages. I like Python specifically because I know it better. So I just have an observation or let's say a self-selection bias or, you know, whatever bias I just put on it. Oh, I, I know Python very well, uh, but it's a very good uh, rounded tool to get into this. And so it's not very complicated to learn. So if you're you're somewhat tech savvy, and you can get out there and read documentation and apply it. There's some great tutorials out there, and then you can start applying these models to data sets. But if you don't have that skill set and can follow some simple uh, instructions, you can also do this in Excel. Um, and you can also derive like a, a data spread and to see like, is my data normally distributed? 
Well, that will tell you something. That's that surface fabric that holds everything together. If you're looking at your data and it's completely skewed to the right, that will tell you something different than if it is normally distributed. And and so, I my hope is that people, you know, I, I my my goal is to break down the barriers, the scary language that is put up around this stuff to make people think that people who are data scientists uh, deserve to be making a half a million dollars a year and are the smartest people in the world. You know, like like there's there is a reason why people put up these barriers. They want to be the experts in this world. And I don't believe in that. I'm all open source, open, everybody share, you know, if I got it, I'm going to give it to you. Um, and I think that anyone can get into this at any level and it's easy to get into. You just have to just, I mean, like right now, if you pull up, uh, um, uh, if you pulled up, um, a, any statistical, a calculation, let's just say you wanted to normalize your data, a Z score, is the simplest calculation in the world and this is taught in like high school okay or entry college right um you're gonna get hit with a formula and that's your first barrier and that's what's going to turn off most people um but that formula is that that foreign language and then once you break that wall down then you understand what's going on and so um you know i i think that people should not be afraid to try and fail and and get into if they have collected data get into it do data monging and see what you can uh, see what you can observe very interesting uh yeah it's amazing we have all this technology and tools available to us it's interesting you mentioned there's all those different uh tools that are available for people like you can basically download this stuff and go play with it and learn it on your own is what you're saying oh yeah absolutely there's enough information out there to fully you know, you could become an expert in all of this. Fantastic. Well, we're rolling up on the break here, so I guess we'll roll us out to the break, and then we'll come back, and uh, we got one more uh, half-hour section here. We'll uh, try and wrap all these concepts together and uh, talk, a, talk a little bit more about it. Uh, right. With that, we're going to roll on out to the break. Uh, you're listening to Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, as in let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. Thanks for listening to Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, and we will catch you on the other side of the break. Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, tuned in, talk stream live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, as in let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. Tonight's guest is Brian Seco. We're talking about data science and statistics and all sorts of interesting stuff around that, including peer-reviewed peer, peer journals and uh, skewed stats and all that kind of stuff. Now, Brian, you've talked about a lot of really interesting science tonight and a lot of provided a lot of interesting perspective on it. 
But, you know, I'm just a farmer guy here, right? At the end of the day, I play around with Raspberry Pis. I write a little bit of Python code. I collect data. And all I'm really doing is looking at charts and going, eh, it looks good to me. You know, hey, that system I designed seems to be working. But um, what are some of the tools for, for doing more advanced stuff like this? And, and how would a person go about acquiring those tools and maybe, like, at least just learning to implement them, you know, without going into, without having to get too deep into it? Um, what would you say for how to, how to do that? Great question. Um, where to start? Uh, first off, depends on your familiarity with what tools you have. And then your, uh, what do you know what you don't know? And that's what I like to ask people. I mean, uh, where, what are you using? You know, if you're just um, pulling data out of a, a sensor, um, again, you're talking to somebody, I don't know anything about agriculture, agricultural data, but if you gave me a whole slew of it, I could probably come up with some trends and talk to you about it. Interesting. How do you get there? Right? So, um, first off, uh, how are you store data is important. Um, if you're storing data in massive Excel sheets um, or CSV files or Office Leeway files or whatever free spreadsheet Google Docs, you're going to be very limited of what you're able to do because the way you look at data, data is structured in a couple formats. There's warehousing formats that are more complicated, but there's either like this dimensional model, there's star schemas uh, that you can do where, where variables are kind of related to each other in more of a database sense. But when we talk about like a more dimensional traditional view, uh, if you have your data stored in Excel spreadsheet, you're looking at a single observation typically for an entire item where one row is unique. Um, and then each column is a variable about that row. Okay, uh, there are different ways to structure data. Uh, you can kind of pivot that and you can have uh, variables that are more common and then uh, rows making multiple transactions. And so uh, example of the dimensional model uh, is where you'll say something like, um, you know, your, your name is Brian, um, you are, you know, 36 years old, you are, driving a car, the car is red, you know, whatever. And those are your, your stats and that's it. And that row, one row belongs to me. And then everything I'm gonna get there uh, comes from that one row. Uh, uh, but sometimes you need to manipulate data uh, with different time series or box plots, which, which I'll get to in a second. And there are other structures that are better uh, at providing that type of, of analysis. And that's where you have like, well, my my variable, my column here is a general variable type. I'm trying to make it as less techy as possible just to reach a wide audience here. So forgive me if someone's listening to this and just laughing at how much it's like sounds botched up. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, you'll have a type, you'll have a data type. And, and, and then you'll have a, another column that might say um, date, which is very general date. And then another column that says individual, right? And so then you might have, you know, uh, uh, Carlton, 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 10 times. And then uh, uh, object one is, you know, gets into your car, timestamp, turns on car, timestamp, hits gas pedal, timestamp. And these are giving you different ways of kind of manipulating that data. Whereas if it's pivoted out on a row, um, you're using uh, the memory in different ways. Okay, so Excel has, I think, what, a 100,000 row limit, 10,000 row? It has a limit, right? There's going to be a, a cap of how much data you can put in it. And I can tell you, after you probably get about 26, 30 columns out, you're not really going to be doing good manipulation with it. Uh, so CSV file is the same format. Um, so, so if those are the tools that you're using, you have to first focus on isolating the, the, the data that's important and getting it out of that larger 
uh, uh, kind of pool and then putting it into a smaller subset that you can start manipulating and massaging. And this manipulation might be uh, a parsing text data to separate a date from a part of another text that came out of your, your sensor. Uh, I'm going to keep saying sensor because I don't know what else you're using to collect this. So you said Raspberry Pi, so I just, I'm thinking sensors are all over the place. Sensors <laughs> is mostly what I'm doing, so that's, you know, directly. So you probably actually have transactional data. You probably have a couple of what I was describing before where they're just logging event after event after event after event. Um, but basically, even if that's what you're dealing with, you, you have to really first get a subset of what you're looking at and you have to kind of know the initial question. Uh, if you don't have an initial question, you probably need a more advanced tool to start formulating a question. So let's assume you have a question and let's, let's uh, what's a question that you would wanna know about your uh, greenhouse? I guess uh, something like, you know, what what's the average uh, BTUs that I would need to heat for an entire heating season? So then I could calculate how much how much firewood I would need to run that. And, you know, how do I go about like extract extracting that data and kind of getting a better understanding of what what's involved? And then as I make changes to the greenhouse, you know, like this year I put insulation in, wood chips on. I've noticed a massive difference in wood consumption is way down, but I really don't have a way to like analyze that on a numerical level i guess i would say that's awesome i wish i could say that that was scripted that's a perfect example um <laughs> that all right so let's talk about that you have time series data you're doing a linear review of something over a uh, periods of time you need to encapsulate things in time so that you can compare them to each other now if you just said take the average of a season and you made a change you need to know one change to another you mentioned average but we talked about why an average isn't the full story. So what would be a good analysis? What would be a good way to store this data? Well, <clears throat> first off, you would want to normalize it. You would want to have all of your temperature readings uh, together, uh, and you would want to have whether that maybe certain sensors need to be not um, in the data set because they're closer to a door. Um, maybe you need to pool your sensors together and make that one transaction. So you have to think about uh, different ways that this could be impacted. But let's uh, say for an argument's sake, all of your sensors positions don't impact each other. Uh, so you're going to take a transaction of time where the, the temperature is being read, and then you're going to have a timestamp associated with it. Uh, you're going to clean this up, and then you're going to think, how do I want to group it? Well, there are different ways you can group uh, data uh, that's on a time series. You can group it by millisecond, uh, second, minute, hour, day, month, year, week, whatever. Um, in your case here, you might probably, I would suggest, well, how frequently do you change your variables? Okay, so I'm, I'm logging data every minute of every day from every sensor. It's all thermal sensor stuff. But you have your point is out there, you know, like, uh, say, like in October, I definitely wouldn't use as much wood as I would in like January or February when it's really cold. You're out to a month scale then. So now your challenge is going to be how do I pull all this data that's being transactioned on a minute to minute scale and put that into a monthly view? That's that's fairly challenging to do with a tool like Excel, but not impossible. Uh, let's say that's all we were working with Excel. Um, you would probably want to first parse the data and see if you're, uh, well, if you're logging it in, in rows, you're going to need to start creating some summations. And this is where working with large data sets with more simple tools are a problem because you're more prone to error. Not impossible, uh, but it can be done. And then what you would want to do is aggregate it up into a larger amount. And so a good way of doing this is actually 
I like to, with that type of time series, well, I've, minute to minute is a little excessive if you're doing like a yearly scale. I mean, because you, you do so much. overkill data. for sure. And yeah, you really have too much data there, but there are better tools that will, like Python would deal with that quite well. Um, and let's talk about that in a second. Um, but you, what you would want to do is then create columns on this time data that are, are, are your grouping mechanisms. So maybe you will read your 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 uh, date time scale and then tell me the day of the week, uh, state the day of the week, and then you'll state the month that that it's in, and then you'll state the year that it's in. Okay, and now you have all these ways of different of aggregating it. And then what you could do is I would make a box plot, and and what you would be looking for in a box plot is you would have your median per month. And it would be going up and down as you would expect it would. And you would have a 75th percentile. And uh, if you don't know what that is, I would encourage you to look up box plots. They're very simple to understand. Uh, and then you'd have the 25th percentile. Uh, and actually, I digress again for a second. I'm not going to jump into it because I want to get through this whole example. But uh, you'll have your 75th percentile and your 25th percentile. Okay, you'll have your median. So you have all this information about the spread of your data. You'll have your interquartile range, which even breaks out even further. So you start with this line in the middle, and then you got a line up here and a line down here. Okay, and then you're going to have these two tails that come out of it, and then they go to your outlier range, and then that's a calculation that tells you anything above or below those two lines are your outliers. Uh, maybe they're important. Maybe they're not important. Maybe you have a lot of outliers. Well, that's that door sensor that you might want to move in closer. You're not getting a good temperature reading. Or maybe you have a leak somewhere, I don't know, a leak or a hole in the greenhouse that is letting cold or hot air in. And that, that's where our, our anomaly uh, detection is actually quite interesting. And then you could even actually, if you want to do really advanced stuff, you go to clustering and classification and then machine learning models. But very simply, uh, these, these box plots um, will tell you what your data is doing. Uh, and then what you can do is just drop a line and you can say, what does the data look like over here as opposed to over here? And you look at a graph, you say, well, I guess that looks good, but you could actually start seeing some visual trends. Okay. Now you want to take it to the next level. Okay. You perform a, uh, a regression analysis on say the medians per month or uh, no, 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 I'm sorry. That would probably be a poor way of doing it. Uh, you could just do a regression analysis of all the temperatures over the time scale. And you could see the correlation coefficient, uh, which would tell you the strength of that analysis, right? And the deeper the slope in one direction is the strength of it. So if you're expecting your greenhouse uh, fuel consumption to go down or your temperature to go up, well, I would think if you, were, if you wanted fuel consumption to go down, temperature would probably be stable or temperature would be rising from a period where you didn't have it as insulated. There's a number of variables here, but let's stick with temperature. You want to see your temperature increase over time and then stabilize. Well, for a certain period of subset of time, you would see that nice linear relationship and it might be low. So it'd be around maybe 0.3 would be kind of low, moderate would be around 0.5 or really strong 0.7. This nice steep, you throw all this insulation to the greenhouse and all of a sudden the, the temperature shoots right up. And then over time, there's no relationship. Well, that's what you wanted. It's not going up. It's not going down. You stabilize the situation. So that that's how you kind of go from very simple to uh, moderately challenging was building, going from bar graphs to a box plot. That's, that's fairly challenging to do with simple tools depending on your data, I'll say depending on your data, um, and then going even further and doing a regression analysis and actually seeing what the data is telling you. Now, I want to get more advanced. Well, first off, I want to jump back for a second. 
If you're storing your, that much data, you need a database. Uh, there are different databases that exist. There are access, There's, uh, but there's a ton of free, I say access because people are not afraid of the, the, the GUI interface to jump into this stuff. And if that's your start, if that's your jumping off point, then do. But there are, you know, SQLite uh, that holds up to, what does it can do now? It can do like a terabyte worth of data for a single file. Uh, yeah, right. I'm, I'm running MariaDB with, with SQL queries. Right. And, yeah, I can store a phenomenal amount of data yes. to the point where I can like overload a processor just trying to like analyze it. <laughs> well, see, but that's that's where this stuff needs to be stored because if you have minute by minute transactions, what you really are creating is kind of like what they would call a, uh, like kind of a data lake where you're just kind of putting all this stuff together. You don't know what to do with it. Uh, and, and, and so now you what you then want to do is then pull it out and structure it so you have all this 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 raw um data coming out from your sensors and you put it into repository a and then you take it to repository b where you start kind of separating making sense of it then you put it into repository c and then that's just now more along the lines of the questions and then you query it then you query repository c it's in a much cleaner state and then you're asking questions then you analyze it so and that's where like python it down basically that's right, and that's where Python really comes in as a great tool, or R is a great tool. Uh, I don't know Julia very well, but I've been told by colleagues that that's also another really up-and-coming tool. Um, and like I said, I like, I like Python because it's a, it's a jack-of-all-trades. Um, and I'm going to say that people, you know, I, I actually hate when people say, well, jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Uh, but this full saying... I hate that, that line, too. <laughs> and you know why. <laughs> I believe the full saying is jack of all trades, master of none is oftentimes better than master of one. And uh, I've never researched that, but I like, I like that. I like that. But I like it because it gives you so many more tools to work with. It integrates with, with the databases really well. It's simple to understand. Um, so if you're just jumping into that world, you know, getting into pandas uh, and NumPy, NumPy can be a little bit challenging if you're used to spreadsheets in Excel. So I would say you can dive right into pandas and it will function very similar to Excel, and you'll kind of get used to that more uh, laid out uh, uh, typing to kind of describe the variables and the filtering that you're trying to do. But then you can just say, you know, like in very simple commands, take all this data, do a box plot. Okay, there you go. Take all of this data, and on that box plot, overlay a regression line. Okay, there you go. And so then, so, so once you start getting familiar with how your data should be looking and the questions that you get, uh, when you employ these advanced tools, you're going to start looking at them faster and faster. Uh, that's a great starting off point. If you want to get much more advanced into this, the question would be, is the change in my one variable uh, changing my data to a point where the observation that is being made is, is chance? Is, 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 is what is changing over time truly statistically significant? And so then you would propose a hypothesis. And you would have the null hypothesis or the alternate hypothesis. And, the, and in this situation, you would have something where it's like, well, the null hypothesis is there is no change. Right? And so as long as you can statistically prove that there is a change, you reject the null hypothesis. And the alternate hypothesis is that there is a change in some kind. And that's a kind of very simple way of breaking that down. And that's kind of the step beyond the descriptive statistics and kind of the simple stuff where we're looking at bar graphs. What we really want to measure is if I make a change to this warehouse, or I'm sorry, excuse me, greenhouse, is there is my change truly impacting um, my hypothesis? And have I made a substantial difference? Now, now you might have reduced 
the amount of wood that you're using to heat your greenhouse. Um, but you could then measure that on a scale and you could say that um, with, a, uh, with an alpha of 0.05, I can say that I have uh, uh, decreased my wood uh, intake or alpha, whatever you the, the amount of wood that I'm burning. Um, and then the variable that I changed is absolutely the driving uh, uh, you know, point of this. And it has made a great impact to uh, my, my, warehouse, uh, my, my, my uh, greenhouse. Um, and that would be a 0.05. That'd be probably pretty easy to to observe. You'd have to be quite wrong to probably not get by a 0.05. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's, those are like easy thresholds to hit. Um, and then you'd be like, oh, okay, great. Now do 0.01. And so now what do you have to do? Like what variable do you have to change to get to that the next level? And then you just keep kind of expanding it. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Wow, I have a, a lot of data to process considering all this so that I can figure out how to better process data. <laughs> it sounds like if you're capturing minute by minute data, there's like a there's a, a, a computer on fire somewhere. <laughs> it's a raspberry pie and she's burning up. <laughs> you're probably heating your whole house from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, the last, I did a data dump back in like December and reset the database because I've been logging since 2016 and it was like, I don't know, 2.3 million rows did it logged. And I was just like, like I go to query it and it'd be like, uh, one minute. <laughs> okay, here's your, uh, here's your chart. <laughs> Struggling. And then after I did the dump and did a clean database, it's like snap, it just responds. Well, yeah. And then th that's when you want to get into database principles and parsing your data and, and, and you want to fold it the right way. And you don't want to be having these huge data logs that you dump every once in a while. You've got to be regularly maintaining it. If you expect to be acting on your data or you plan to act on your data, you wouldn't build a house and just start throwing walls up. You would lay a good foundation. And all of this is based on a good foundation. A database is going to be the point that drives everything. And whether that's a binary data file, an CSV file, or whatever, you have to have a good foundation of how you're curating that data to be able to do anything with it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I just started out with like, well, you know, let's log everything and mm -hmm. figure, you know, I mostly started logging it for charting to just to have a chart that I could, you know, see like, how are we affecting things? How is the stove running? How is the thermal mass working? All that kind of stuff. And then over time, it's evolved to like, well, okay, let's let's see how we're making efficiency gains. Let's see where our heat loss values are. Let's see mm -hmm. side temperature affects inside temperature and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I know it's interesting. I you have a great experiment about like kind of thermal mass and like kind of the uh, heat dispersion. And I'm always really interested in actually the uh, the thermodynamics of the heat exchange and how the colder temperatures, uh, how quickly the heat exchange changes, um, just kind of a personal interest. So you actually have a very nice setup to kind of write up really great stuff about the materials that you're using. If you're using insulation type, I mean, you have a, a great way of kind of measuring that. If you can measure airflow as well, they like, oh, and I'm, I'm sure that you can. I'm sure you're going to tell me you have like a wind tunnel set up through there. <laughs> I don't, but airflow is definitely on on my list. Like, I think you know, like I'm planning to build a new rendition of this in the future. And uh, like, I'm kind of taking this as like the experiment model that was like, let's just build something and test it and see how it works and refine out like the really rough stuff out of it. And now like I want to go forward and build like a really robust model that, you know, monitors airflow and, and understands, you know, the dynamics a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Well, and documentation is going to be the key for all that. 
And you need really good documentation practices to make sure that when you're changing variables, you're logging what you're doing, you're setting up experiments that you can repeat, and then when you find significant uh, elements, um, you you do stop and you just do it all over again. It is what I just observed uh, a truly uh, random, or is it actually uh, a part of my variable change? And when you start doing experiments like that, you'll actually find that there's just uh, a wealth of information in your data. When you start looking at all this stuff, it's, it's fascinating what's in there. I can't wait to do some post crunching on it and really have a look at it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're rolling up on the end of the show here, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to plug. Uh, I know you have a new YouTube channel up, and I know you have a website up, and you've already written some really fascinating articles on that new website. So I hope people will check that out. And I know you're planning to do a lot more. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your new channel, your new website, and uh, yeah. planning for the future? Uh, yeah. Th um, so uh, my the website's called easydatadoesit.org, um, and uh, it's kind of just you know it's kind of every the, the mantra that I've been saying this whole time, and that's kind of the thought behind it. And that's going to be focused on a lot of instructional stuff. I'm going to be writing articles, I think, kind of about some of the, the high-end theory, theoretical conversations that we were having because I find them interesting. But I also kind of want to lay out documentation that people can go back to and kind of uh, learn some of the things that I've learned and just I just I'm trying to share this knowledge. The YouTube channel uh, is going to be really focused around uh, more of the data manipulation. It's hard to type, it's hard to explain in writing, so I'm going to be doing a lot of tutorials about how do you clean data effectively, how do you get to these graph types, and, and how do you do it, and we're going to be sliding on a scale from really simplistic examples to much more complicated ones. Uh, recently, I, you know, I put up an article uh, of how to analyze Twitter data with Python. I find that really interesting. That kind of gets into the edges and nodes, and that really focuses more actually on the technologies than the data structure itself, and I'll be putting up more uh, 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 analyses of actually the, the actual node data structure, kind of that neural connection, because uh, there's interesting things that you can do with that. So it's going to be a really wide gambit of, 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 of content, and I hope to appeal to a number of audiences, and if I can bring someone in who's kind of scared to do this stuff and equip them with enough knowledge to kind of get rolling, I feel like I will have done a good job. That's awesome, and I uh, I read that uh, that Twitter article, and I found that fascinating. I I know I looked at you shared it with me, you know, like a few days ago, and I I looked at it initially, and I was like, I'm too tired to read this article and understand <laughs> of it tonight. And I looked at it the next morning, and I was like, I need more coffee before I read this. So I didn't get to it for like a day or two, but uh, that was really well written and a really fascinating way of looking at data and and understanding data and connections between. Uh, you know, and it was about like uh, tweets and retweets and that kind of stuff. But the, all the numbers and the, and the data that were there is really interesting. Your analysis of it was fascinating. Thank you. And and you know, I, I'm going to be posting a lot of code. And I think the things that I find challenging is like there's a lot of code that's out there, and there's a lot of uh, instructions around it. But but it's not. I don't think always very well explained. Um, and sometimes there's not enough code to play with it. So anything that I build, I'm going to be posting the entire code base. I'm going to be, I have a GitHub uh, that will be up. All the code will ultimately go to there. So you can pull the entire article down. But what I'm really going to try to do is explain block by block, you know, this is what it's doing. And I'm not going to be teaching people how to write Python because if, if you can read it, then you can understand what I'm doing. My hope is that you have enough of a, a knowledge to say, okay, these are the lines where this was being manipulated and this is the outcome that it is having, and then get people off to their own start 
and so that you can kind of not have the challenges that I find with some of the libraries that are out there. You have to go to like 15 different sources just to pull a simple graph together. And then it's like, oh, I'm reading four different articles, but this is trying to be more of a one-stop shop. Yeah, you can end up really lost in trying to research all that stuff and like pull it all together for whatever project or thing you're trying to do. That's one of the challenges I've run into too. I use Python for my data collection. There's times where I'm just like, Man, you know, it could just be a little simpler. Like, I got to find this part and that part and then install this and pull that and do this and do this. Like, so I'm really looking forward to uh, to something like that where it's a little bit simpler and you really kind of build those pieces together. And I'm sure, of course, people will be able to ask you questions in the comments or uh, or whatever as well. Yeah, absolutely. I actually I'd love to take content. I mean, I have a ton of stuff that I can write about, but if I people have questions, I think that's more meaningful because then I'm giving kind of I'm getting a gauge of what the audience actually is and what they're looking at. And uh, and then I can kind of focus more content on that. So hope to have some videos up soon. There's no videos out yet. I'm very bad at recording videos. My first couple attempts did not work out the way I wanted them to. I'm much better at writing articles at the moment, but I'm getting there. It's baby steps. <laughs> the video definitely takes practice, and I also know you're busy with a family life and a work life and uh, and a degree life, so it's not like you have a shortage of things to do. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on, Brian. I hope that you'll come back and uh, we can get into some deeper discussion about some of the other pieces we've touched on. And as your YouTube channel and site develop, I'd love to have you on to talk about some of the more uh, detailed stuff about articles and videos you're going to be doing. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I, uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, and uh, would love to chat with you about data anytime. Clearly, uh, it's one of my one of my interests. <laughs> Definitely a passion of yours for sure. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, and I guess we're just going to roll out to the end of the show here. We're just about at the end of the uh, time slot a lot of here on TFR. So, uh, you've been listening to Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio, iHeart, Tuned In, TalkStream Live, and also on the Pharmacy Seeds Network channel, uh, Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. Uh, and uh, we're speaking with Brian Seiko tonight about uh, data analytics and statistics and uh, all sorts of data analysis related stuff. So, Brian, thank you again for coming on. I hope everyone has a great evening and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Truth Frequency Radio. Thank you.